0: 3CR would like to acknowledge that we broadcast on the stolen lands of the Wurundjeri and Boon people of the Kulin Nation, who are the traditional owners and custodians of this land upon which we live and work. We pay respect to Elders past, present and emerging, and extend that respect to other Indigenous Australians who may be in our audience or listening to this broadcast. We acknowledge the continued resilience of First First Nations peoples in the face of ongoing colonisation and settlement, and that sovereignty was never ceded and a treaty was never signed.
1: This is 3CR
2: Breakfast.
1: Alternative news, analysis and current affairs. Monday to Friday,
3: 7am to late 30 am Early double.
4: your
0: Good morning, everyone. To breakfast. Um, it's now seven o'clock, and it's go- I feel like it's going to be very humid today, but. Today I'm in the studio with two others, um, Grace Hall uh, as um, as I've introduced them as last week and I'm introduced by, uh, I'm, I'm here with someone else um, who's going to be joining us soon, um, her name is Pippa, welcome to Wednesday Breakfast Pippa.
5: Thank you. I'm really excited to be here today.
0: Yes, um, I'm also really excited and looking forward to listening to what you do because I know, like me, you also have a background in journalism. But also, unlike the rest of us here, you're from the UK.
5: Yeah, so I'm backpacking at the moment. I've been in Australia since the end of May. So I'm really excited to do some journalism type stuff and be on the air while I'm here and just get some more experience.
0: Mm, Yeah, yeah, that that all sounds like really, really exciting. And um, yeah, how, how has like backpacking around the country been for you?
5: backpacking has been amazing. So I've done the East Coast already, but Melbourne is my favourite place by far. So I've come here to work for a bit, but I've been away for 11 months now since I left the UK. So mm. it's a really long time, but I'm having a great mm. time.
0: Yeah, and and we're all... Um, well, yeah, this is going to be the last um, in-studio sh- in um, show for me for this year. And probably I, I won't be joining um back next year but um you know it's, it's getting to the end of the year and um I'm also I also know that this is going to be your first Christmas in the summer yeah. So, yeah I hope you're looking forward to that as well
5: I don't know how I'm going to cope how hot it's been recently I'm not sure how I'm <laughs> going to survive it genuinely
0: you're, you should be a bit you're lucky that you're in Melbourne because it's um yeah, it's not as hot as the other places in Australia, but yeah. Um, Grace, how how have you been this week?
6: I'm good, thank you. I I um caught a caught a nice sunrise on the way here this morning. Mm-hmm. Um, but the the storm last night was crazy.
0: Oh yeah, My yeah. My pets yeah. were
6: terrified.
0: Oh man, yeah. It was a
6: lot, but no, I'm good. I'm yeah, good.
0: Yeah. Uh, well. That's great, and um, yeah, thank you, Pippa, for joining us today. Um, th- so look forward um to today's show. Where coming up, we have Pippa who had a conversation with um. Ooh, sorry, which one was this? Pippa who had a conversation with Isabella Magee. type 1 diabetic who is currently an ambassador for Diabetes Australia and that was for World Diabetes Day which was last month but um, that will be interesting to hear. And um, then after that we have a conversation that was aired on Tuesday home time. And that was with Associate Professor Jake Lynch. They were talking about sort of like the media bias um, in the Australian media landscape and um, in relations to particularly Israel and Gaza and how that's been reported. Um, And then after that, we have um, an interview that I did uh, with... um, sorry, an interview I did with Gabrielle Burnett, who is a nurse and midwife from the Australian Nursing and Midwifery Federation about healthcare workers for Palestine, Victoria, which is um, sort of like a collective of healthcare workers from different unions um, banding together in solidarity for the healthcare workers in um Palestine and they are raising awareness and demanding for a ceasefire so stay tuned for that and then lastly we have a conversation from Solidarity Breakfast. Um, Annie McLaughlin speaks to co-editor Alex Ettling about their book Knock the Top Off A People's History of Alcohol and it's basically a journey through australia's relationship and history with alcohol so that that's just um that'll be really interesting to hear so hope you're looking forward to that stay tuned but now we'll go to the headlines take it away again grace thanks anara
6: the final report of the ndis review was published on december 7 The review has been described by the Australian Government as an effort to put people with disabilities back at the centre of the NDIS. However, throughout the reviewing process, the review focused on making changes to reduce the costs of the scheme. In April, Labor revealed it would reduce annual spending growth for the NDIS from 13.8% to no more than 8% by the end of July 2026. One of the many current issues with the NDIS is it requires applicants to prove they have a permanent disability to be successful. As a result, many people with severe mental illness who apply for the NDIS are rejected. This
5: year's International Human Rights Day on December 10th coincided with the ninth weekend of protests against Israelis' apartheid regime and escalating genocide of Gaza. Thousands expressed their outrage at the Labour Party as they continue in their refusal to criticise Israel and call for an immediate ceasefire. The rallies across Australian cities were organised after the United States vetoed another call for ceasefire and the United Nations Security Council. At the Mianjin-Brisbane rally, Greens MP Max Chandler-Mather told the crowd, the Labour Party knows about the crimes of the Israeli government and they still send weapons and arms to the Israeli military. In Naam, Melbourne, community pressure forced Maribong City Council to revoke a motion to rescind a ceasefire resolution.
0: Thank you, Grace and Pippa. Now for a weather update as Queensland prepares for its first cyclone of the season, tropical cyclone Jasper is expected to reach Queensland around this afternoon. About 15,000 people in Cairns have been told to evacuate the area, leave their homes to seek the higher ground due to concerns about major storm about a major storm surge. Which could bring floods to low-lying areas, the Bureau of Meteorology tropical cyclone uh, the meteor the Bureau of Meteorology said that tropical cyclone Jasper will become more severe. The Category One system was located about 265 kilometers east of Cairns yesterday evening, and is likely to cross the coast near Port Douglas this afternoon the cyclone could cause up, up to 500 millimeters of rain and winds of up to 140km per hour. And that's all for our headlines today. Thank you again, Pippa and Grace. And we will now go to a song. that was the song morning star by paul archie next up we have pippa bringing us a very important conversation about diabetes
5: thanks for that sunira so it's been a month now since world diabetes day which occurs every year on the 14th of november diabetes is a condition where there is too much glucose in the blood Insulin is a hormone which moves glucose into the body's cells so it can be converted into energy. For diabetics, the body may have insulin resistance or not produce any insulin at all, resulting in high blood glucose. According to the World Health Organization, about 422 million people worldwide have diabetes. World Diabetes Day has become a crucial platform to emphasise education, prevention, early diagnosis and effective treatment. The three main types of diabetes are type 1, type 2 and gestational. The day-to-day management of diabetes can be extremely challenging and there are no days off. Type 1 diabetes is often diagnosed in children and is caused by the body attacking and destroying the insulin-producing cells. Since the body does not produce insulin, type 1 diabetics are expected to closely monitor and manage blood sugar levels through testing of blood sugar and regular doses of insulin via injection or a pump. Having myself been diagnosed with type 1 diabetes 18 years ago, I personally understand just how challenging managing this condition can be. I reached out to Isabella, a type 1 diabetic who is an ambassador for Diabetes Australia. Isabella was diagnosed with type 1 when she was 11 years old and has spoken out about her journey with the condition, self-confidence as well as stigmas she's faced. I had the chance to speak with her and to hear about her journey with diabetes. So I'm here today with Isabella, who is an ambassador for Diabetes Australia. Thanks so much for being on 3CR today. No worries. If we could just start with you telling us a little bit about yourself, your background with your diagnosis and your involvement with Diabetes Australia, that would be great.
3: Yeah, so I was diagnosed with type 1 diabetes in 2009 when I was 11 years old. Um, I guess to say the diagnosis changed my life would feel like an understatement of the impact it's had on me and those around me. Um, I've been forced to go through a lot of battles. I never would really wish upon anyone. Um, And my initiative with Diabetes Australia, I guess, is to show others, especially young people with diabetes, that they aren't alone and that everything they're feeling is extremely valid.
5: No, that's awesome. I think that's really cool that you are using a platform to try and help other people. It can be really difficult to manage this condition for sure. So I was just wondering, has diabetes had much of an impact on your relationship with yourself and your self-esteem? And if so, in what ways? Yeah, so I think
3: self-confidence is something that a lot of people struggle with. Um, However, as I was diagnosed when I was 11. As a prepubescent teenage girl, you know, who was slept with a chronic illness, I really felt the extremities of that. Um, As diabetes is like an invisible illness, I've found many people deal with it and manage with it by, you know, just something that they have to do, uh, which I know I have done to cope with the reality of living with the illness. And anyone with a chronic illness doesn't want to be constantly subjected to misconceptions, have a visual reminder of how, for lack of a better term, sick they are, receive insensitive questions or unrealistic fear from other people, which are all very understandable reasons to not want people to know what's going on in your life. Personally, I've been discriminated against in work environments and not invited to events due to lack of education about my type 1 diabetes and fear of something would happen to me. Um, Despite all this, though, I think especially from a safety perspective, it's important people know and understand how harsh and brutal the disease really is, and that they understand and know what to do should someone with diabetes need medical assistance.
5: No, for sure. I'm really sorry to hear that you've been discriminated against. I mean, I have to say I've had similar experiences in work environments myself. Do you feel like in Australia there's um, a bit of misinformation about the difference between type 1 and type 2 diabetes? Is that something which you've come across?
3: I think there's misconception everywhere, and that's not at any fault of those people. I think we really need to focus on awareness and education of um, the different types of diabetes. As you know, there's not just type 1 and type 2. There's gestational and uh, quite a few other types that are coming to surface. Um, so I think it's more about educating people on, on what they are and not hiding the illness.
5: No, for sure. I think more education is really important. I feel like I spend day to day so many hours having conversations about what condition I actually have and what it means, especially at work if my blood sugar is low. So I feel like you can't really escape explanations, but I guess it's good that people are more informed. Definitely. So now I wanted to speak a little bit about medical equipment. I feel like with modern day diabetes, it's a lot of um, continuous glucose monitoring sensors and insulin pumps. I was just wondering if you yourself wear any medical equipment, and if so, how you feel about wearing it?
3: So I wear a CCM, which is a constant glucose monitor and an insulin pump. And I actually recently reached one year since having them both earlier this month. Oh wow, happy one year. For 14 years, I didn't want to, I suppose, show my illness. So I avoided technological advancements and stuck to needles and pricking my fingers multiple times a day, which is not ideal. It's quite funny when I look back on it, I realise how much these devices have helped my health and mindset by taking even if only a small amount of the burden away from this illness.
5: No, for sure. I was just wondering what the kind of turning point for you was with deciding to get a of sensor and a pump?
3: Honestly I think um, I personally went through quite a very hard time with dealing and accepting uh, my illness and I think the turning point for me was realizing that I'm not invincible and that it's inevitable that I will kill myself if I do not look after myself um and i i think i just i think age as well you know as as you get older and more mature but I, it was really just um realizing that i can't ignore this illness
5: no definitely thank you for sharing that i think i had quite a similar experience i was forced to go on a cgm so It wasn't actually my decision, but then once I was on it to see how much better my control was, it was almost laughable that I'd been avoiding it for so many years because it just made my life so much easier. Yeah. So when you're diagnosed at a young age with type 1 diabetes, I feel like the journey coming to terms with the condition, the responsibility of it can be really, really difficult. Do you have any advice for any type 1 diabetics that are struggling with the process of acceptance and self-compassion in light of a diagnosis?
3: Yeah, I suppose take one day at a time and be kind to yourself and enjoy your life but not at the cost of your health. And I also think surrounding yourself with a positive support team because Diabetes is a 24-7 job and something that you can't clock off from. So having a team around you to support you for when the inevitable burnout hits is really important um, to understand that you have, have that backup support for you.
5: No, definitely. I think diabetes burnout wasn't a term I'd heard until like a year ago and I was like, okay, yeah, this makes sense. This is what I'm experiencing. Do you personally have any tips for dealing with burnout and getting a bit of mental space from the condition?
3: I think just uh, for me personally, I like to just meditate, take some time to myself. um, But also, yeah, having people that I can talk to and And lean on for support is really important for me, Um, you know, even for something as little as, hey, can you please, you know, help me with my insulin or could you please pick up my medication for me today? Um, Just little things like that that can become quite overwhelming when they become part of your day-to-day routine.
5: No, definitely. I think just having some extra support to kind of share the burden a bit can be really important. Thank you so much for being on 3CR and for sharing some insights with us.
3: Thanks so much for having me.
5: That was Isabella, an ambassador for Diabetes Australia, discussing her journey with type 1 diabetes. Thanks again to Isabella for joining us on 3CR. There are currently 1,500,000 people living with diabetes in Australia, Well Diabetes Day provides an important platform for education about the condition. If you want to find out more information about diabetes, you can head to diabetesaustralia.com.au and check out their online resources.
6: Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander children aged 3 and 4 can access 15 hours per week of free kinder. Kinder programs provide culturally safe places for children and families and are led by qualified teachers. Enrol for 2024. Speak with your preferred kinder service or local council today about how to register for a place. Corey Kids Shine at Kindergarten. Find out more at vic.gov.au forward slash kinder. Authorised by the Victorian Government, Melbourne.
0: A 3CR supporter.
2: another distant farther we might it work without you oh you had to go and hurt someone someone who meant a lot to me was it worth it did she deserve it or was it just you Juha Back and back to me.
0: Listening to 3CR, Wednesday breakfast on 855am on the dial. Um, That was morning, uh, sorry, that was Tullamay Gill by Thelma Plum. Right now, we're just sort of steering off into a different territory a bit. But um, since it's my last show, Pippa and Grace have already decided that they want to, um, you know, settle in. And, um, yeah, what do you have planned, Pippa? Yeah,
5: so obviously it's Sanira's last broadcast today. So Grace and I wanted to ask her a few questions about her time at 3CR, her next steps, and what she's going to miss about the place.
0: Mm. Yep.
6: What would you say, Sanira, has been your highlight of... Uh, you've You've been here for a year right so
0: yes yeah about a year I think my I first started going on air like uh, like in actually I think it might be like December yeah yeah yeah. so it's probably been a year and then yeah in February I started like producing content awesome yeah But it's been, it's been a great time here. I've, I've loved being here, but sadly I am um, moving on to other things um, since I've gotten some career opportunities very, very far away in uh, regional Victoria. So um, I have to move to a completely different place and um, get used to a new lifestyle in a small town, which will be, uh, which will be exciting, but yeah.
5: Yeah, that's going to be a big change. So what what are you planning to do for career change?
0: Well, yeah, I'm planning to write for a couple of newspapers um at, in Swan Hill. So, yeah, I'll be reporting as a cadet at the lo- uh at for at the local newspapers there. Yeah,
5: Amazing, that sounds fantastic. So are there any moments from 3CR that really stick out to you? Any interviews that you absolutely loved doing?
0: Yeah, well, one of them, um, well, actually, my first interview, I I sort of have, like, a soft spot for it. Um, And our previous co-host, Claudia Craig, also um, really likes that interview because um, it was an interview with... um, Simon Longstaff from the Ethics uh Center. Um, they're a philosopher as well. And um I don't know, it, it was I it since it was my first interview, I pre- like I over prepared and um but still like I think we had like a very productive discussion about ethics mm. and yeah, it was interesting. But um and also another interview that I did was with Toby Walsh uh, and that was about AI the ways AI is being used in warfare and I also thought that was really interesting and it was an honor to speak with like one of the top experts um, in AI they're from the UK as well but they're in Australia at the moment and then another interview that I did um, recently was um, also I uh, I also really liked was um, our interview last week uh, with Shohred, the uh, the Iranian activist, about kind of misinformation and disinformation um, online um, in uh, targeted for migrants and non-English speakers. So I, yeah, those were really interesting things uh, that we talked about.
5: No, they sound fascinating. Are those available for listeners who may have missed them to listen back to? Yeah,
0: yeah. Um. So yeah, they are available. Um, at uh, to listen back to at our podcast page, which is at threecr. dot org. dot au slash Wednesday Breakfast. So if you want to listen to any, um episodes or interviews throughout the year or the years before you can do so there but thank you Grace and Pippa so much for sort of saying this farewell as you two come in so I'm sort of like you know passing the torch on to you but yeah we will be back after an announcement
1: Stand in solidarity
6: with Palestine this Sunday.
0: With the most devastating attack ever launched on the people
7: of Gaza, it's time for all of us to stand in solidarity with the Palestinian people.
1: Israel has waged war on the Palestinians for the last 75 years. The Nakba, ethnic cleansing, occupation of the West Bank, East Jerusalem and Gaza. Israel has now imposed a total blockade on Gaza and declared war. Stopping food, electricity and fuel and launching an all-out attack.
7: We have to mobilise to show our support for Palestine. 12pm State Library this Sunday.
1: Rally to demand freedom and justice for Palestine. No war on Gaza.
7: Free Palestine Melbourne is a 3CR supporter.
0: You're listening to three c r breakfast we're now going to go on to a conversation that was first aired on uh, Tuesday home time with Jan Bartlett and that was with Associate Professor Jake Lynch from sydney university and um they you know uh Jan and Jake sort of discussed the unholy alliance between Australia. Australia's mass media and the Australian Jewish press. This discussion was first aired on the 14th of November, which was a couple of weeks after the resi- resignation of top UN official Craig Mokeba who denounced the Israeli assault on Gaza.
8: The following is a report from the 1st of November. The Director of the New York Office of the UN High Commissioner for Human Rights has left his post protesting that the UN is failing in its duty to prevent what he categorises as genocide of Palestinian civilians in Gaza under Israeli bombardment and citing the US, the UK and most of Europe as wholly complicit in the horrific assault. He wrote on 28th of October to the UN High Commissioner in Geneva, saying, this will be my last communications to you in my role in New York. Also complicit in what has been named, quote, as an unholy alliance in defending Israeli slaughter of Palestinian civilians, unquote. These are the words of Jake Lynch, Associate Professor at the University of Sydney, who are you including in this unholy alliance defending the Israeli slaughter of Palestinian civilians?
4: I just think it's it's a kind of reactivation of um, a fairly normal pattern that the classic account of um, influences on news content by Noam Chomsky and Edward Herman, the propaganda model, is very much borne out here. That what you've got is a consensus among the leaders of Australian political parties that extends almost complete impunity to Israel, and the the Murdoch press in particular um, is inclined to pick up on that, and in that it really is, consciously or not, echoed by and echoing the Australian Jewish news, and that's a a concern that the, the readers of those newspapers are really in what's called a media filter bubble, although they never really hear any heterodox perspectives
8: to your knowledge, is mass media the same or similar in other Western countries?
4: Well, certainly in the UK, uh, the Murdoch media is generally to be found dwelling on what it conceives as wedges used to try to split off or demoralise support for national politics, and so they include the familiar panoply of um, immigration, asylum seeking soft on crime etc and that they they really position themselves as an accomplice to power it's therefore an obstacle to reform certainly in the case of the UK with um, the leadership of Labour by Jeremy Corbyn, that's the last time Labour were really proposing any serious reforms, the accusation of anti-Semitism was weaponised against Jeremy Corbyn with no basis in fact it was an infamous scam but uh, the Murdoch press were definitely uh, playing a a very um, vanguardist role in that campaign. And it did link up with other factions of the British establishment, unfortunately, to bring down Jeremy Corbyn's leadership. And that has been replaced by Keir Starmer, who is completely on board with the uh, apologism for Israel's war crimes in Gaza.
8: And what methods do they use to demonise or threaten
4: journalists? Well, there's been an interesting example recently where the ABC reporter Tom Joyner who is generally at their Istanbul bureau, uh, was covering the early stages of this war. The Australian picked up on a message he'd exchanged in a WhatsApp group um, about some of the wilder claims that were made about the Hamas raid on October the 7th, in particular the claim that they had decapitated 40 babies. And in this WhatsApp group, which was really only two other journalists, uh, Tom Joyner described that claim as bullshit. And, of course, the Australian, through its media correspondent Sophie Ellsworth, seized on this apparent gaffe and uh, publicised it. It was never intended for any wider circulation than this WhatsApp group uh, Had used it as a a source of embarrassment to the ABC to get Tom Jordan taken off the story. And, indeed, he was was sent back to the Istanbul Bureau. But we should note in passing that the story indeed was bullshit. So he was being penalised for being correct about it. You might not quite have used that language on air, but nonetheless, you've got it right. And media, including the Australian, which gave it any uh, uncritical play or airtime, were misleading their audiences. So the boot was very much on the wrong foot there.
8: And The Guardian and SBS, how do they fare?
4: Well, certainly The Guardian's reporter has been uh, playing a prominent role in trying to challenge the Israelis on well-attested allegations of war crimes. Uh, It's very difficult to square the facts as they unfold of Israel's assault on Gaza with the provisions of international humanitarian law. Now, the uh, Israeli ambassador who appeared at the National Press Club just engaged in the familiar denialism. And, of course, what that does is, is that it retains contestability. In other words, war crimes cannot be reported as accomplished fact uh, they must instead be treated as claims, in, remitted into the kind of, on the one hand, on the other hand, in the end, only time will tell, kind of pattern, which inevitably drains them of uh, some of their force their and content. It's happened exactly to same. Uh, last year when the CNN reporter um, Shireen Abu Akleh was killed, and it was obvious that it was from an Israeli sniper's bullet, but Israel denied it while it was a story that was being prominently reported and therefore obliging journalists who follow the rules to keep on with the kind of claim and counter-claim kind of uh, a pattern of, of reporting. And only later did the UN conclude that, yes, it must indeed have been a deliberate assassination by an Israeli sniper. And, of course, findings by the UN are reported, but by that time the heat has died off, so the mission has been accomplished with regard to, to throwing grit in the face of global audiences.
8: They don't like journalists or others bringing up what happened in Gaza, in Palestine, prior to October the 7th, the past 100 years.
4: Yeah, it's all about backgrounds and contexts. Look, I mean, the preamble to the Universal Declaration of Human Rights actually says that human rights must be protected by law, lest man, and forgive the dated gendered reference, but we can say lest human beings are forced to have recourse as a last resort to armed rebellion in the face of tyranny and oppression. Now, a 16-year illegal collective punishment blockade on Gaza and a regime which all competent authorities agree is one of apartheid is the dictionary definition of tyranny and oppression. Now, what are human rights in this context? Well, any international formulation of human rights begins with the phrase all peoples have the right to self-determination. And, of course, the Palestinians have seen all diplomatic political and legal rights, uh, legal uh, pathways, I should say, to the realization of that right, systematically closed off with the collusion of actors in the international community, such as Australia. So the Hamas raid on October 7th is the inevitable consequence of that situation, foreseen in as many words as long ago as 1948, in the preamble to the commercially produced newspaper, the Australian Jewish News. However, Uh, we now do have a thriving and flourishing independent media sector. Uh, So we have pearls and irritations, as one example, which has rapidly attained quite a wide reach and and, um, significant daily circulation. And that does field uh, a great many extremely well-informed, heterodox perspectives, including from members of the Australian Jewish community, including on events in Palestine. Concentrates mainly on Australia's relations with our region and in particular China. And that's significant because really the one should be seen as a subset of the other. You know, the relationships have never been better encapsulated than in the phrase from Caspar Weinberger when he was U.S. Secretary of Defense under President Ronald Reagan. Israel is America's unsinkable battleship in the Middle East. And the role of the Biden administration in the present conflict in Gaza is conceived as part of the neoconservative plan uh, for a new American century to extend U.S. dominance over this century directly across the aspirations of millions of people from Beijing to Beijing, we might say. Uh, In that sense, it's, it's closely related to the maneuverings in our quadrant of the globe, which are inscribed in the AUKUS submarine pact, for example. It's a very clear plot to precipitate an attempt to win a war with China to reiterate American dominance over the Eastern Pacific, and it's extremely dangerous and counterproductive to Australia. That is the main theme of independent media, such as personal irritations, and the links to the events in Gaza are being spelt out there by a wide range of expert witnesses to good effect. So now we do have a more heterodox and more variegated media landscape than we've perhaps had before.
8: Do you follow social media to get a feel of what's put up there?
4: There's a lot on social media. Of course, it's easy to be overwhelmed, but uh, one, one can still look out for those uh, basic principles, that if you see a formulation of this conflict in, in dyadic terms, then you should proceed with caution, uh, because, of course, um, you know it's very easy to be shoved into the kind of black versus white, good versus bad kind of formulation. What we should instead be doing is attending to these issues of background and context in search of both causes of and potential exits from uh, the conflict exits from the the violence in a very broad range of different settings different contexts in particular what has been the perennial missing element uh, including in phases where uh, peace talks have been on the agenda between israel and the palestinians has been any firm boundary or hindrance on israel's own behavior so, for example, the International Criminal Court um, has been investigating now for some years. There was no reason, and there is no reason, why the ICC shouldn't have ruled straight away that the entire Jewish settlement building program in the West Bank is illegal and a war crime because there's one unambiguous line in the Fourth Geneva Convention the occupying power must not move any part of its population into the territory it occupies. By contrast, this year, 2023, will have been a record year for settlement building in the West Bank. Now, no one's going to make a new story out of bricklayers laying bricks or scaffolding teams putting up scaffolding to build houses, but that is nonetheless consequential. Uh, and it's an essential context in which journalists should seek to reflect the underlying processes that are going on in the conflict that are leading up to the observable events. And only when we can apprise ourselves of those aspects can we be satisfied we've got a fuller picture, whether we access it through social media or, as I would recommend, independent media, such as Personal Irritations.
8: I must mention public radio, particularly 3CR. Almost continuously, since our exception in 1976, we have featured Palestinian voices and Palestinian-owned programs.
4: It's a, a really uh, a very good example of the, um, the account of influences on news content in the propaganda model put forward by um, Chomsky and Edward Herman. The 3CR um, is not influenced by the interests of owners and advertisers because it's a public uh, station and it doesn't have any advertisers, which is great, uh, but it's not exempt from, from flack. And this is what uh, the designers' lobby specializes in, uh, both exerted uh, up front in, in overt criticisms and working behind the scenes. You know, the Australian Jewish News ran a piece by uh, a lobbyist from IJAC, the Australia-Israel and Jewish Affairs Council, where the piece was was boasting about the influence that had been brought to bear behind the scenes on SBS Arabic News. And, of course, one of the non-executive directors of SBS now is Bekaladev, a former editor of the Australian Jewish News. So we can guess through what channels that influence was exerted behind the scenes. And that's also a form of flat. It doesn't just have to cur- take the, 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 the form of uh, uh, kind of vituperative criticism above the line. It can also be exerted behind the scenes. and Perhaps that's more insidious.
8: What do you know of the Zionist lobby in the U.S. and how that influences the media?
4: The role of the Zionist lobby in the United States is, um, is founded on a myth. And I, and I don't mean that in the, uh, the sense of being um, false or unfounded. It's, it's, it's not mythical status where well, the UN um, in 1947, as it had been newly formed after World War II, was due to consider the partition of Palestine. And it looked as though the vote was going to go against the partition of Palestine, that the leaders of the pro-Israel lobby in the United States approached the Truman administration, which was then facing mid elections. And they said, look, everyone knows most American Jews vote, vote Democrats we will withhold our votes and may even give them to the Republicans at these midterm elections, thereby rendering you, President Truman, a lame duck for the remainder of your term unless you use your position as the host of the United Nations and the most powerful member state in it to ensure the passage of this partition plan. So the vote Even now, for example, a recent poll shows that of all registered Democrats in the United States, the number who approve of Israel's military action in the Gaza Strip is 33%. Those who disapprove of it is 49%. So far, a far larger proportion of Democrats disapprove of it than approve of it. Uh, but even so, that myth still persists, uh, and, and that's uh, still a kind of um, a, a major hindrance on the operation of Uh, politics on the center-left in the United States. And that is, of course, therefore, reflected in the media uh, that um, uh, correspond with that section of political opinion. So you're talking about the New York Times, you're talking about MSNBC, etc. I mean, it must be said that the New York Times, for example, a very interesting piece of journalism after uh, Israel's attack on the Gaza Strip back in 2021, uh, they uh, used video evidence to mount their own investigation and prove that the buildings that were struck by Israeli bombs on that occasion could not possibly have had any conceivable purpose except civilian. So there are still um, oppositional and, shall we say, uh, duty-driven instincts to investigative reporting, even when that refutes the Israeli line. Uh, But there is that kind of uh, let and hindrance on them. both political and media representations in the United States, which stemmed from that original mythical event back in the 1940s.
8: Finally, what can be done to stop the ethnic cleansing now underway in Gaza? How do you counter it?
4: About a week in, um, after the um, original Hamas raid, that's when Anthony Blinken started talking about the restraints that Israel needed to observe. And his phrase was that democracies have higher obligations. I think that's uh, partly because the Americans had received strong signals from a number of players they needed to keep on side, the Egyptians, the Saudis, the Indians, for example, uh, that life would become very difficult if it was seen that Israel were just going ahead with, um, you know, blatant war crimes. They are going ahead with blatant war crimes, but... By other leaders. That uh, uh, was on a Friday, so then the following Monday Anthony Albanese in the Australian Parliament starts talking about protecting civilian lives and the laws of war. And that was echoed by other leaders after that first phase when Israel appeared to have carte cart launch. That is in turn, I think, largely attributable to the groundswell of public protest there has been around the world. And you saw that in the UN vote last week when the uh, motion General Assembly for a ceasefire. And the number of countries that actually voted against it, that is to say, with Washington and the Israelis, was down to 12. So Australia abstained. Australia should not have abstained; it should have voted for it. But you know, even the even the deranged Rishi Sunak regime in Britain uh, only abstained instead of opposing it outright. A number of European Union countries backed it, uh, and that was quite an indicator of the. A dwindling global diplomatic support for Israel, which can only have dwindled still further in the period since. But that's because governments are having to witness and respond to the groundswell of public protest, been. so we need to keep that up. Uh, we need to seek out routines, the political opportunity structure. So I should be going to Anthony Albanese's office this afternoon where there's a rally and starting to circulate my proposal for a left vote strike. You know, I mean, these incidents don't embarrass parties of the right. The coalition parties here in Australia are not in the least bit embarrassed about this because they wear their sociopathy on their sleeve. Everyone knows what they represent. The social democratic parties of the world are supposed to represent something different. And they need to come to a fork in the road when there is such an instance as this. And the road that's marked support, uncritical support for Israel needs to have a sign nailed firmly to the bottom of it. Do not go down this road because you will lose. So we need to enforce this now. You know, we need the Albanese Labour government to be aware that it's in serious danger of losing the next election because it's taken the attitude it has to Israel and Palestine over this particular, this particular episode. Uh, and that really has to be the change away from that mythical event and the Democratic Party support in the United States Back in the 1940s, that's what has to be switched fundamentally and it's in our hands to do so.
0: That was Jan Bartlett talking to Associate Professor Jake Lynch from Sydney University about bias in Australia's media landscape in relation to Israel and Gaza. You can catch Jan on Tuesday home time for local, national and international interviews every Tuesday, 46pm via 3cr.org.au slash streaming or via podcast at 3cr.org.au slash Tuesday. We'll be back after an announcement.
6: 3CR is a community radio license holder. What you hear on community radio is governed by the community radio codes of practice. The codes of practice cover matters relating to program content, including local content, news, current affairs, Australian music content, programs for children, and the responsibilities associated with broadcasting by and for the community. They also cover aspects such as community access and participation in how 3CR operates. Copies of the codes are available from our website. Go to 3cr.org.au forward slash who we are.
0: Okay. You're listening to 3CR 855 AM on the dial. It's now 7.54 AM. And now we're just going to be listening to a conversation I had yesterday with um Gabriel Bennett sir so, but um but to give some context about what we're going to be talking about um for over 50 years Israel's illegal occupation of Palestine has resulted in many displaced Palestinians discrimination and deprivation of rights as Palestinians This system of apartheid impacts Palestinians in their everyday life, including their access to healthcare. In 2022, according to Gaza-based human rights organisation Al-Mazan, nine patients, including three children, died while waiting for Israeli permits to to receive life-saving treatment outside of the Gaza Strip. As attacks on Gaza have dramatically escalated since October 7th, healthcare inequality in Gaza has escalated into a full-blown crisis. One of the only two medical schools in Gaza has been destroyed in bombings by the IDF and the attacks have killed more than 18,000 civilians and have left thousands more injured, leaving medical facilities strained and overloaded. Human Rights Watch says that the Israeli military's repeated, uh, repeated apparently unlawful acts on medical f- facilities, personnel and transport are further destroying Gaza's healthcare system and should be investigated as war crimes. Healthcare workers all over the world are showing solidarity with doctors and nurses in Gaza. And healthcare workers for Palestine have been organising vigils and protests here in Melbourne, calling for permanent, calling for a permanent ceasefire in Gaza for the protection of medical staff and other essential workers left in Gaza. I was joined by Gabrielle Bennett, nurse and midwife from the Australian Nursing and midwife, Midwifery Federation, about healthcare workers for Palestine in Victoria. How was Healthcare Workers for Palestine formed? Why is it important for healthcare workers in Australia to um, help and show solidarity? Mm-hmm. Um, the group was formed
1: when the Unionists for Palestine um, first met at Trades Hall. There was a big meeting. Um, probably in about mid-October, for any union members that were interested in what was happening in Gaza. And there was, you know, probably 200 people there. It was a really mixed bunch. It was all types of workers. Um, And so from that meeting, we sort of started creating little... um, you know, different worker or discipline groups or union groups. Um, so the health workers got together at that meeting. There was probably only six or seven of us, we're all from different unions um, with different roles, but all in, in healthcare. So from there, we created a little WhatsApp um, list between us, and from there, it's expanded.
0: Mm, and and
1: um, what was your other question? Why is it important for health workers?
0: To ensure um, solidarity with those in um, Gaza, yeah. Mm, mm.
1: We think it's really, really important. I mean, we can't imagine how it would feel if our hospitals were being bombed. Um, you know, if we had to leave our patients um, under gunpoint, you know, that's what's happening to health workers in Gaza. Um and we know that lots and lots of healthcare workers around the world are getting active in showing solidarity. I guess, as you know, health workers, most of us belong to unions. We believe that um, healthcare is a human right. Um, you know, we take an oath to provide healthcare to all people, regardless of. Um, you know religion or race um and we believe that that unions are really about solidarity for workers um you know it should be about standing up for human rights for safety fighting injustice discrimination um yeah and we need to push our unions much harder to get them to respond to this disaster mm
0: and um you know since october the se- uh, 7th um it's been uh, really violent. There have been, um, you know, bo- bombings, um, shootings, um, you know, like, and you know, civ- like so many c- thousands of civilians, thousands of children, have died. Um, how how has um Israeli attacks impacted Gaza's healthcare system?
1: Well, look, it's 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 just hard to imagine how it has. Um, we know there's information coming out through some journalists, through MSF and Red Cross, um, um, and some connections within our health worker group. They've actually got connections with people in Gaza. Um, what we know is that probably about 300 healthcare workers have been killed that we know of. Um, but you can imagine in all the chaos and drama, it's very hard to get numbers. You know, we've heard that there's so many people dead that they just can't be counted. Um, we know also that many health workers have been kidnapped. Um, I think the last information we heard was about 48 health workers. Um, and they're, they're some of them are highly skilled, much needed health workers, Um you know, um, all sorts of people. So paramedics, um, physicians, surgeons, nurses, midwives, administrative staff, um, a lot of these people have been abducted. Some of them have been released, uh, but many have not. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, apart from that, people don't have the basic supplies to be able to treat injured people. Um you know have they even got a safe building or a safe clinical area to work in probably not uh, because the hospitals are being bombed um, have there's you know problems with clean water power um, how do you treat people when you haven't got that really basic infrastructure um, i read the other day that um, gauze you know which is a really common bandage that we use Gauze was actually developed and named in Gaza um, some centuries ago. So I thought, oh, isn't that ironic that, um, you know, we use gauze every day here, multiple times a day. But mm. in Gaza, um, I'm guessing they probably haven't got any gauze. Mm. You know, they haven't got drugs, medicines, anesthetics,
0: equipment. mm. Yeah, I'm not sure how much um like you'd know, but um I was also wanting to know about sort of like, you know, how dire like how how dire is like the need for supplies? Like do do they have enough medical supplies to like even treat patients?
1: We don't think so. I mean, as you said it's difficult to get information. Um but because of the blockade, um we know that medical supplies are incredibly short supply. Um you know, there's there's not even food and water enough for people, including the health workers that are trying to treat people. So, um you know, we've heard stories of people having to have uh, surgery without anaesthetic. Um, you know, oxygen is running out or, or it's already run out. Um, look, if you haven't got power in a hospital, um, you know, you're very limited really in what you can do. You haven't even got lights to see what you're doing. So, yes, we don't think there's um, supplies yeah totally inadequate supplies um i think some of the aid agencies are trying to get some um supplies in but i'm not sure how that's going
0: mm. and coming back to here um you know healthcare workers for palestine um victoria have organized a vigil earlier on the 1st of december could you expand on some of the some of these initiatives like this vigil and other efforts that you have taken part of in this group? Yeah. Um
1: so the vigil on the 1st of December was to um I guess acknowledge the deaths of health workers in Gaza and to um stand in solidarity with them. Um and so we had um I think we had about 200 people come to the steps of Parliament. Um, We also had a a snap action the week before that outside the big hospitals, you know, around Parkville, um, which was really well attended. I guess the idea is to raise awareness in the community that this is happening Um, and to try and get people sort of engaged with the issues. So at the vigil, um, we read out the names of the healthcare workers that had been killed or murdered um, that we knew of. We know that there's more that we don't know of. That took a long, long time. Um, Yeah, it was a very powerful vigil. Um, We've got another vigil coming up actually on Friday the 22nd of December.
0: Yeah, and where would that take place?
1: That's going to take place at 5:45. Um I think it's going to be we're still trying to organize it and pull it together, but um I think we'll be meeting on the southeast corner of Carlton Gardens. Um but if people would like to come along, you're very very welcome and um if you want more information, there will be further detail as we get a little closer. Um, you can go onto our um, Instagram pages and I can, yeah, that would be the best way. We'll
0: definitely link all of this to our listeners um, after the show. And, um, you know, on that note, how can, you know, non-healthcare workers also get engaged and help the cause and um Make sure that healthcare workers in Gaza are protected? That's a really good
1: question. I think there's lots and lots of ways. I think just talking to friends, talking to your work colleagues, your family, um, the media is really divisive. Um, so I think we need to be able to have discussions um, and at least. Um, You know, talk about it with the people that we mix with every day. Ask your local uh, member, your local member of parliament to demand a ceasefire and to demand, um, you know, that medical supplies and humanitarian aid get in. Um, Ask your union what it's doing. Um, You know, if you're in a gardening group or a book club, like talk to people about this. Um, Come along to the Sunday rallies show your support, come along to the vigil. Um, There's a number of agencies that are collecting um, donations. So MSF, Medicines Sans Frontier, um, they focus on healthcare. They're certainly doing an amazing job and have had a lot of their volunteers have been killed. Um, They've had their cars blown up, Anyway, you can donate to MSF or um AFEDA is the Union Um International Development Fund. They're collecting funds. And there's many, like Red Cross. I think the best way is to donate to one of the um, you know, the big um donors that are very organized.
0: Yeah. Um, thank you for telling us all of that. I know that collective action is can be huge and and make a difference, but you know there's also so much that uh, we can do, and um, you know a lot of the times it it's it's the fault of um, you know the people that are actually in power that this is all happening. Um, I know you might not have the answers, but um, how can um, you know politicians and people in charge? What should they do to ensure that healthcare workers in Gaza are protected? Um,
1: I wish I did have the answers. Um, I guess there needs to be a political will to make the healthcare system safe. Um, I've read that MSF had sent the GPS coordinates to um, all the warring parties saying these are healthcare facilities, these are clinics, you know, keep clear, but that obviously didn't mean anything and, you know, most of the hospitals have been totally bombed. Um, you know, if there was a political will to make um, a ceasefire happen and to stop death and destruction, it would happen. But as you said, there's a whole lot of complexities and agendas and, uh You know, governments um, are often not interested. They're interested in their own agendas,
2: Mm. which
1: is, you know, why we need to keep lobbying um, for all these things and for a ceasefire um, and, um, you know, lands for Palestinian people that are safe.
0: Thank you, um, Gabrielle, for coming on for Wednesday breakfast. Thank Um, you, Sonira. It's great to
1: have the opportunity to talk with you about this. All the best.
0: And that was Gabrielle Bennett from ANMF talking about healthcare workers for Palestine and healthcare workers for Palestine are organising another vigil um, coming up on Friday 22nd of December at the Carlton Gardens. But the location is not yet fully confirmed, Um, but more updated information will be on our show notes later today. Um, Thank you for listening to that. But now we're going to go on to another conversation that was first aired on Solidarity Breakfast with Annie McLaughlin talking to Alex Ettling about their book called Top uh, Knock the Top Off, A People's History of Alcohol. Um, this is just an excerpt. To listen to the full interview, you can go to 3cr.org.au slash solidarity breakfast.
9: So you've had a, a, a giddy round of launches for your knocking the top off Uh, a people's history of alcohol. It's been quite exciting for you, hasn't it?
7: It has. We have gone all over the country. We started off in Brisbane and, um, you know, that was a personal thrill for me because I love um, the saints and I love the go-betweens and we found all sorts of ways to talk about the Brisbane punk scene and the way that uh, connected with, with politics in in Australia, they sort of had these curious connections through uh, the singer of the Saints, Chris Bailey, his sister Margaret, who had been um, expelled from every school in Brisbane over a miniskirt. And uh, she ended up, um, you know, support... I think it was quite influential on her younger brother to be a bit um, anti-establishment, and to sort of help them get gigs. And invariably, they ended up having their own... Um, their own venue in a share house which they dubbed the club 76 and um that was an example of an informal venue but um you know we were looking at all sorts of different angles from those that, that sort of informal drinking to the the place of pubs in our lives and um so from brisbane we went all the way to broken hill don't ask me how that makes sense to be on the journey but and then to uh canberra and uh Sydney, Melbourne, Hobart next year, so it's all happening.
9: Yeah, yeah, it's very exciting. And you bring up um, that site of um, informal drinking in Brisbane. Uh, This book is really quite fascinating because it uh, goes through a whole range of different um, interesting elements to the Australian history and people's connection to alcohol. But in a... um, in a academic sense, you take a particular point of view, don't you? There, there's a strategy in this.
7: Well, I think we, more than anything, we wanted to take the moralism out of it. Of course, it's a highly moral question. The history of alcohol in Australia is all about people's attitudes to um, these questions. Not just these questions, but you could, if, you were, if we were to do a book about sex or, or other sort of, you know, questions like this, of course, you have to tussle with that. But, um, you know, I think in a way that sort of thing's obscured um, talking about I'm kind of surprised that people haven't written about that much about this topic before, given that I think we all kind of feel like alcohol is such a big part of all our lives. Even if you don't drink, it's a part of your life because it's hard to escape. So we wanted to sort of, we didn't want to write a sermon about, you know, um, that drinking is bad or on the other side that you can party your way to revolution. We sort of wanted to, um, yeah, just sort of, you know, get a whole bunch of contributors together and say, well, let's look at it from different angles. And it is um, a complicated, vexed question because um, often the most useful aspects of um alcohol is the socializer or something that makes you feel good, that can bring people together, can also tear people apart, can make you feel awful, can, you know, really run things off the rails. So um I think, you know, we all kind of know that, but actually having, you know, a bunch of historians go away and research, um, a Whole bunch of topics from you know, right from invasion to early colonial days to the story we had last year when the um, the anti fascist bartender spat in the beer at the Irish pub. You know, we've covered 200 plus years of stories and tried to really give a rounded, varied picture of how alcohol fits into social. Our social lives, our economic lives, as well, for that matter.
9: Well, it's um, it's it's like those gra- groundbreaking um, studies that say took a commodity like coal or um, or a- a- any commodity and then explored the social and economic realities that are connected to it. But you've also done something else. You've decided to do it from the point of view of the working class. And those who, um, and that of course then brings in class struggle, doesn't it?
7: Absolutely. I mean, there is that. Um, you know, we called it a people's history. I guess maybe um, we could have called it a radical history. But I, you know, there's a great tradition of of that term, people's history. You know, people would know Howard's in his classic book about American um, history that went through that that lens. And you know, there's kind of enough books written about kings and queens and prime ministers and lawyers, you know, so when when we win something progressive, there'll be a lawyer quick to take credit. But we know very well, listeners to this program, that it is ordinary people and uh, people power, Uh, organizing they get these things and they're often not the people who have their stories told so yeah it's very much the the framework and um the way that i like to explain the the idea of people's history is that it's sort of the window that you choose to look out of of a building so i i imagine a, a pub and um you could imagine you know just where in melbourne you can um you know take um take uh you know, on the corner of um, of uh, Flinders Street and uh, Swanson Street, Young and Jackson, you know, the this grand pub. If you looked out the nicest window, what do you see? You see beautiful church and you see everything, you know, well manicured and you see the best of everything. But what happens if you choose to look out of a different window? You look out the back window into the alleyway and you see the people, the workers rolling in the kegs and you, you might see in a previous hundred years ago or whatever, you might have seen um, sex workers plying their trade, or sp bookies, or homeless people, or you see the more uh, a more rounded picture of life, the people that are marginalised, the people who actually do the work. So yeah, that's our approach to history with this book. Um, I'm sure that you know. John Elliott and these big um, barons of the brewery industry or people who own a lot of pubs, they often have their stories told. And um, here's a chance for us to tell the stories of of the barmaids who, you know, fought for better working conditions and, you know, were chasing scabs out of those pubs in Broken Hill when we were there. I very much enjoyed telling that story, um, pouring pepper onto the the meals of of scabs who are breaking their picket line. So, um, yeah, we've uncovered all sorts of things like that.
9: Yeah, it's really interesting. Uh, In fact, this book is uh, full of absolutely astounding little-known facts. One of them that just took my breath away was uh, that Joseph Stalin was on the front of the Women's Weekly.
7: Yeah, Yeah, I mean, we did cover quite a bit about the early communist party. I mean, I suppose it's a, um, it's a period of promise. It doesn't really matter in some senses, um, what, what happened to the communist party. But when you think about all the, those early people who, you know, they'd seen what had happened in Russia, they saw the, you know, workers power there. And, um, yeah, there was, um, uh, we were, I was particularly interested in the Bohemian connections because then as now, you know, a lot of people who are interested in arts and who are sort of forward thinking in music and film and art, they take an interest in um, social equality. And so um, no surprise that in Melbourne as well, people would meet at the, um, often the sort of Italian, continental sort of styled cafe bistros. And this is when, you know, I was... Almost illegal to get a wine you know they'd have to have um, vases on the table, so in case the licensing inspector came, they could tip the wine in, but those early reds reds and radicals would would um, rub shoulders there and I think that you know it's hard to actually evaluate the poor decisions that were made, but clearly they were talking and and reimagining a better world so um we we went, we sort of used that story to also then get into the nitty gritty of what happened to the Communist Party and you get all the uh, and you know we looked at people like Noel Coonahan the artist who did some really heroic things like the you know being in the free speech cage up in Brunswick and he used to go around um, go around uh, Australia with Judah Watton cartooning people and he'd meet people in the pubs and sort of pay his way through that Um, you know he was someone who was yeah, as a Stalinist, and um, but you know started off in a very different sort of journey. So um, you get all the way up to that curious point during Second World War when Joseph Stalin is um, on the cover of Women's Weekly because he was an ally of the Australian government. So you know the communists were sort of at times quite accepted, but at times. Um, you know, the worst enemies in Australia, hounded by ASIO, and also at times just sort of these eccentric bohemians that you'd see sort of in line with the modernist
4: artists.
9: Yeah, it's really fascinating. I thought it was fascinating the picture of William Lane as well. He, He was a fairly unattractive character, wasn't he? (laughs)
7: <laughs> yeah, well, very popular, which is um, quite astounding for us, given that the book is about alcohol. But of course, he wanted to talk about people who did not like alcohol at all. <laughs> so William Lane fits into that picture. He wanted to, you know, he didn't like capitalism, but he um, basically, he didn't want to have a revolution. He didn't want to bother with all that. He wanted to just set up a new society from scratch in the society we live in today. Now, a lot of people have uh, tried communes, and there 's a lot of debate about whether this is possible. His approach was to actually um, get a massive sailing ship, ship fill the sailing ship, try to entice people to come, go all the way to South America, and form a new society there on um, you know a sort of new socialist ish society, and uh, they called it New Australia and uh, New Australia in Paraguay of all places. And, um, you know, we like to think that um, socialism will be about equality and um, freedom of choice and all sorts of these sorts of things. But there were two two main rules which really um, got in the way of William Lane's designs, and that was William Lane did not want alcohol at all. So there was a ban on alcohol, and he was absolutely racist to the core. He did not want people... Um, fraternising with the locals. So um, inevitably, um, this experiment collapsed very quickly because people did want to drink and they did want to, um, yeah, go across the colour boundaries and talk to the people who were their neighbours. So, um, yeah, you know, we take a very... um, We we examine the people within the left and different projects because it wasn't all rosy. And, you know, certainly there's a... There's some utopian projects in there for uh, better or worse. And, um, yeah, I guess our approach is, like, let's look at everything. Let's throw it all on the table and maybe out of that we'll sort of see, well, where do we want to go from here as well? What are the what are the projects and the strategies which have really worked for us? So we've used sort of stories around alcohol to do that. But, um, yeah, also just to, um, um, yeah, have a, a rolling in good read through Australian history, really
9: yeah yeah it does uh it uh, it also uncovers a whole range of really interesting things that uh i didn't know things like the uh a role that the um the women's temperance movement had in uh championing the rights of um aboriginal women and how the um federal group of uh organizing for women's rights fell into line with the notion that uh, assimilation was the way to go. That was really interesting.
7: It's fascinating, isn't it? Because we think, I think probably a lot of us know the word wowser. That sort of entered the Australian vernacular even today. But, you know, that kind of was invented 100 years ago. And that word is basically ridiculing the anti alcohol forces, you know, also the forces that didn't like, you know, made us made people wear full suits when they went swimming at the beach, these sorts of so there was an element of that. But there has always been a, a sort of left force within um within society who was like, no, you know, that's obviously some people cannot handle alcohol and there's some real problems with this, particularly in certain um, you know um, marginalized communities that are already uh, dealing with a lot of stresses in life so you know the Aboriginal population that uh, was clearly one of those so yeah the women's Christian Temperance union has a curiously very progressive um, role um, in a whole number of areas so um yeah we try we tried to cover that very respectfully and um, kind of reassert the the, the- the con- contribution that some of those people made. And uh...
0: and that was Annie McLaughlin talking to Alex Ettling about their book, Knock the Top Off, A People's History of Alcohol. Um, this is an excerpt of a con- uh, of an interview from Solidarity Breakfast. Um, to listen to the full interview, you can go to 3cr.org.au slash Solidarity Breakfast and you can catch the show every Saturday from 7.30 to 9 o'clock um, in the morning. And to... Um, and more in, and a link to to where you can buy Alex Etling's book will be on our show notes later today. and And just um, to finish off, just before we go, um, also an, another announcement um, about a, a planned solidarity action for Palestine happening today at six o'clock which is in harmony square um that's in dandenong so that's 225 lonsdale street um it's a it's at the live it's at the dandenong library and um so show up to that um if you can also you can um if you want to volunteer for mar- marshalling you can get in touch with Chloe de Silva on 0484 938949. But yes, um I think that well, yeah, this is my last in Studio show. Um it's been such a pleasure working uh like volunteering here at 3CR. It's been um so interesting. This is something that I never imagined that I could do but um you know i thanks to the supportive environment here and um and you know all of the interesting things going on in uh, in in 3CR that's um it's made me love community radio so much um but thank you um for sticking with us and uh listening to us here um you will still hear my voice during the summer programming but for now, um, goodbye. Um, next, next week, you can stay tuned to listen to the best of Wednesday Breakfast 2023 with Grace
1: and Pippa. 3CR Breakfast would like to thank the New International Bookshop, Melbourne's independent radical bookstore and venue, for their financial support of this program. You can find Nibs in the basement of Trades Hall in Victoria Street, Carlton. While you're there, check out Radical Coffee, a worker-run cooperative cafe in the courtyard. Keep up to date with upcoming events at nibs.org.au.